Take your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 12. As we continue our journey through some strange stuff. This one's pretty wild. This might be as strange as it gets until we get to chapter 17. Maybe. Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels were down, thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent... 
poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Yes, we should ask God's blessing. Lord, we thank you for your word. We praise you for your spirit that he gives life and light to the truth, to your word. Jesus prays, sanctify your people in the truth. Your word is the truth. And oh God, even now, we ask that you would use it to sanctify us. For Christ's sake, amen. Start with a story. A friend of mine in college had been dating a young lady, uh, fallen in love with a young lady. She was a marvelous, uh, beautiful, wonderful uh, young lady. And he decided that, you know, it was time. He loved her and was, uh, was ready to marry her. So he did all the proper things without telling her total surprise. You know, he actually made it home somehow to talk with her parents without her knowing. He got the ring without her knowing. He got everything kind of sculpted and scripted so that he was ready to ask her. Really exciting, yeah. There are two kind of key pieces of info to the story, though, obviously, you know, being a surprise and all. Uh, One was that he arranged a gigantic engagement party for that night at the house. All of his friends, I was there, all of her friends, all of his family, all of her family, all of their church friends, everybody. I hear the chuckles because you already know where this is going, don't you? (laughs) Fellas, don't do this. It doesn't end well. And I forget what they had done during the rest of the day. I, I wasn't part of the events for that. I, I don't know. But they had had a wonderful day together. Maybe it wasn't a wonderful day together. I don't know. But it uh, gets to the afternoon and early evening. And uh, he says, sweetie, I, I need to talk to you about something. And that was all he got out before she says, you want to break up with me? Uh, and starts falling apart. And I'm talking not like the little, you know, you know the type of cry that some people do where they get that one perfect like movie picture tear that comes down. This is not what she's doing. Right? She's doing the one where the makeup just kind of bleeds and the snot comes out. It's, it's the ugly cry, right? She thinks it's over. She loves this man, and uh, she thinks, again, maybe they didn't have as good of a day as we think, actually, now that I reflect on it. And so she falls apart. And he's like, what? No, 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 no. I don't want to break up. I want to get married. She didn't hear that. I still don't know how she didn't hear that part. Oh, you don't love me. It took him better part of an hour to convince her that it was time for them to get married. 
which is beautiful, is wonderful because he had to convince her, but it took so long to convince her that he didn't have very long to get her ready for the party that we were all going to be waiting at. He's like, honey, no, seriously, like, you got to go fix your makeup. Like, they're all waiting for us right now. Like, dinner was served 20 minutes ago. We got to hustle because you've been crying. I think, actually, if I've done the math right, I think this summer will be 20 years of marriage for them, which is fun. The, the, the fun part of the story, though, was she took kind of the circumstances of her day, her week, her month, her year, her life, and she added them up, and for her, 2 plus 2 equaled 38. <laughs> and when her now husband's like, no, what are you doing? No. Two plus two equals four. She was like, it's still 38, you know. And it, it took a while to convince her that no, two plus two is four. You've just misread the circumstances. You know, maybe she had figured out that he was hiding something. Well, yeah, he had been hiding something. He talked to her dad. He had bought a ring, arranged for 100 people to be at the house. Yeah, he's hiding a lot of somethings. You know, maybe she thought he was hiding anger toward her, wasn't interested in her anymore. She misread the circumstances and ended up someplace kind of way out there and then took a long time to be persuaded to think something different. And I do wonder, for Christians too, how often we have similar kinds of experiences when we interact with God's Word and interact specifically with our circumstances and even more specifically with the difficulty of the world around us. Where we look at the difficulty of today and the difficulty of yesterday and how our feelings are hurt and how our friends have been and kind of all of these things. And we say, I know God says two plus two is four, but I really want to believe 38 right now. And the Holy Spirit's like, well, I'm, uh, uh, word, the Bible says something different. And we go, well, I know, but 38... And it takes some convincing. The book of Revelation, John has been telling us a story of kind of the, the days of really since the birth and resurrection of Christ all the way kind of to the end of time. It's largely located, the primary thing he's been talking about is the now. It's not the later, it's the today. And he's been weaving one particular thread through all of the things, but largely in the background. It hasn't been fully brought to light. It hasn't been brought to the front of our minds of this thread of persecution and difficulty. We've seen it in chapter 6 with the saints hiding beneath the altar, crying out, Oh Lord, how long? We've seen it in all the various chapters here in some form or fashion of how the saints deal with the difficulty of life. And in chapter 12, he's going to bring that to the very front of the picture. He's going to bring it into a very crystal clear focus, something hopefully we do in the sermon today, and teach us that 2 plus 2 equals 4, not 38. 
It starts with John explaining a great sign. And again, that word sign is a loaded word. It uh, Here in this book largely means something that's not literal. It's not intended to be literal, though it's going to describe uh, the very fabric, the reality of the world around us, the very fabric of creation. And he starts with a picture of a woman, and she is a lovely woman. I mean, she's pregnant, lovely, beautiful, but even more noticeable than the pregnancy (laughs) is just the kind of very nature of who she is. She's wearing a dress that would have made anybody at the most recent award show, I don't know which one it was or what they were doing, I just know that we have pictures of dresses show up on Fox News or CNN or whatever, I don't care. Her dress is different. It's not made by some designer, some $125,000 dress or something stupid like that. She's actually wearing the sun. My, that's impressive. (laughs) No sequins needed here. No spectacular, you know, needle point. She's wearing the sun. She's clothed in light itself. My, that's marvelous. You get the impression of maybe her shoes or the moon of some kind, something like that. The moon's beneath her feet. She's wearing a most glorious crown. And in the crown, rather than having, you know, like a necklace of pearls or jewels or whatever, she's wearing a crown that has literal stars in it. You know, not like, not like little drawings of stars, like actual burning, like the sun, soul. You know, there are burning stars in her sun. This is a woman of such great and fierce beauty. The only thing she can be described as is clothed by galaxies. Wow. That's a pretty special lady. I mean, who else do we have described this way anywhere in the scripture? I mean, maybe we could figure out who she is. Who else in the book of Revelation have we seen clothed in light itself? Well, that's a description of the Lord God. This is how Jesus is described in Ezekiel. It's how God Almighty is described in chapters 1 and 2 in his glory chariot. And really what we see here in the beginning of Revelation chapter 12 is how God sees his church. And I don't mean simply institutional church. I don't mean simply Christ Ridge, though I assume we're all here. What he's describing here is the condition of believers And the thing that I find so marvelous and so wonderful is the way Jesus sees Christians now. This is not a description of how he sees them in heaven. I think most of us will be comfortable with that idea. Oh, Jesus thinks I'm wonderful in heaven when my sin is gone, where there's no more tears, where there's no more heartache, there's no more suffering. No, this is how Jesus sees his people now. This is how he sees his church now. In fact, actually, if we're going to really be technical, if we want to really get into the the details of the text, this is the description of the church even prior to the birth of Christ. The Old Testament church. Which is really fun to think about. I mean, you go back and go, oh yeah, the great heroes of the Old Testament. I love them all, right? David, he was a great guy. I mean, marvelous. I think of him, I think of just all kinds of purity and excellence. I mean, he certainly never killed anybody. Okay, no, he did. I'm sorry. Moses. Oh, yeah, same thing. He killed somebody else, too. Abraham. Oh, yeah, he was a coward and farmed his wife out to other men. Thankfully, they never took advantage of that. But, yeah, okay. 
It's interesting how we are so comfortable defining God's people in terms of the negative, in terms of their failings, in terms of how, you know, how hateful we are towards each other. And it's inter- that's not how Jesus sees us. I'm sorry, it's just not. Go to describe the church from Jesus' perspective, and it's like, oh yes, here's a woman who's clothed in light itself. Her crown is filled with galaxies. She stands on the moon. Her shoes are glorious. Yes, she's perfect. She's beautiful. She's lovely. She's pregnant in the picture here in this sign. She's pregnant with the Christ child himself. And you think, all right, yay, we're going to see Jesus. All right, good. Well, there's a problem first. Verse 3, the second sign shows up, and you have here the great dragon, the red dragon. And throughout much of human history, and I would say comfortably until maybe the last 30 years, dragons were always the bad guys. I don't know what happened somewhere along the way where suddenly the dragons became the good guys and they're these, you know, wise, sagacious beasts. No, everywhere else in like all of world history, dragons were evil. You can think the Hobbit. Very, very clever, very brilliant, and very evil. This one is red, symbolizing the blood, the destruction uh, that accompanies him. In fact, actually, we find out more about him. Probably, if we were again going to be technical by today's terms, we might call him a hydra. It has seven different heads with mouths filled with teeth to highlight the devouring nature of this one. But this dragon is something special because with these heads, he has horns all over them, which symbolizes his great power. And each head has a crown placed upon it to, again, symbolize this is not some puny little critter. And this is not, uh, oh, no, the church is having to do battle with this tiny little fire ant, one of them. Just smash it and we're good. No, this is the the great and mighty Hydra, this one with heads and mouths and glory and power. And in fact, oh yeah, if you didn't think that this was a real deal, let's look at verse 4. This devil is so incredibly powerful that with the swipe of the tail, he takes a third of the stars out of the sky. That's... Probably symbolically either speaking of the angels that fell with him or maybe speaking of how effective he is at destroying Christians along the way. Honestly, it doesn't matter. It captures the reality of this is a powerful creature. And you think about it, this is the story of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, what happens? (laughs) Adam and Eve sin, they fall, and God makes a promise, and he says to the woman, guess what? You're going to have a child at some point along the way, and that child will go to war with the serpent. Oh yeah, by the way, he's called that in verse 9. He's going to go to war with the serpent, and that child's going to win. But all of human history, from here on out, until the second coming of Christ, will be dominated by the relationship of that child and that serpent, that dragon. Everything will be dominated by that reality. God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden so that they don't eat the tree of life and stay in that terrible condition. And it's interesting what happens. What does the devil immediately go after? What's the next thing you read in the scriptures? Cain and Abel. Where the devil is so clever. Look, if he's told the battle is going to be between the, the, the child of the woman and himself, what's the first thing he's going after? Well, not the woman. I'll go after the kids. She got two boys. 
I'll get one to kill the other. That way we lose the good one and the other one's gone bad. Yeah, the whole problem's solved. Everybody's bad in the picture now. William Still, one of my favorite theologians, he was a Scottish pastor for about, I don't know, 55 years in the same church. Uh, he's very clear in his writings of saying, just remember, when you read your Bible, just because it doesn't highlight the role of the devil, it doesn't mean he's not there. When the fall happens in Genesis chapter 3, the devil's there working. We don't really see him again until Job, and then we don't really see him again until the Gospels, and then we don't really see him again until Revelation. But that doesn't mean he's not active. It just means he's so clever, he's quiet. The best manipulator is the one that you never see. If you catch the person manipulating him, he's not very good at it. He's marvelous, he's brilliant, he's powerful and effective at his task. In fact, we find out his game plan here is he's waiting at the foot of the pregnant lady, waiting for the child to show up so that he can destroy the predicted child, the one that God promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. He's waiting for that child so that he can destroy him. If I kill that child, all of the hope of God's people is lost. And you know what? He succeeded, didn't he? He killed the child. Took him to the grave. I mean, at least that's how it would have been perceived by the disciples. I mean, you think about that when you read the Gospels and when Jesus dies and they're all a mess. Well, yeah. I mean, we have the rest of the story now. They didn't have that. They didn't know they had just won. They didn't know that Satan had just made his greatest mistake ever. They didn't know that Jesus had permanently secured victory. Here it's described as, end of verse 4, waiting so she could give birth to the Christ child so that he would be able to destroy him. And as a mark of, so common with good literature, verse 5 condenses basically all of the Gospels into about half a sentence, uh, you know, telescopes in so that everything gets packed in so quickly. She gives birth to the male child, the one who's going to rule all of the nations, and the child was caught up to God and to the throne. And it's interesting, the way it reads here is what happens is the child is born and before the dragon can get it and eat it, it's like God himself just comes down and sequesters the child, just pulls him away into glory. Oh, dragon, there's nothing to be afraid of here. You can't get this child. It belongs to God. He's going to take him away. And I would suggest maybe this is kind of one of those first areas where we begin to see... Our math doesn't match God's math. Because here in in chapter 12, verse 5, it describes God basically catching up this child and taking him to heaven and preserving him in perfect safety forever. But if you go back and read the story, what did that look like? It looked like being born of a poor carpenter. It looked like having a terribly difficult life. It looked like being a poor rabbi. It looked like being tempted by the devil. It looked like being persecuted by the Jews. It looked like being murdered unjustly. It looked like dying on the cross. It looked like undergoing the wrath of God its entirety, remaining under the power of the grave for a season until he was resurrected and then taken to glory. It looked like intense 
suffering. And this is where we begin to see maybe our math and God's math doesn't add up. Because most of the time, humans, most of the time, when we suffer or we hit things that hurt our feelings or we run into things that make us unhappy or things that make us sad, our immediate default position is to say, I'm doing something wrong. Or actually, let's back up. You're doing something wrong. (laughs) And if I can't figure out who to blame of you guys, then maybe I'll blame myself. But I would prefer to start with you. And it's intriguing how... The way that God's talking about this here is this is actually a mark of his victory. This suffering of Christ is the mechanism that he used to take him to heaven safely. And it's interesting, God's saying, look, suffering is my mechanism for victory. And here I am saying suffering is either you being hateful to me or maybe if I'm a little bit self-aware, consequences of my own stupid decisions. My math doesn't match God's. We see it in the next part too where after she delivers the child, God takes him away. Verse 6, then she flees to safety in the wilderness. Not to a palace. You know, not to the, you know, some palatial villa in the south of France. You know, not with some beach where she gets to find all kinds of rest. It's not with a five-star chef. In fact, actually, if you look throughout the entirety of the scriptures, when the Lord wants to protect his people and to do it in a way that teaches them the richest spiritual lessons, he takes them always to the wilderness. Takes them out of the Exodus. Where does he then take them to show them who he is? He takes them to the wilderness of Sinai. Jesus begins his ministry. He fasts for 40 days. Where does he go so that he would be tempted by the devil and to be prepared for his ministry? He goes into the wilderness. It's the regular location that God takes his saints to get to know him. There's fewer distractions. There's fewer pleasures. It's obvious that we have to rely upon him. And again, already, again, my emotions, I'm I'm not happy with this. I mean, I want to know God where it's easiest. I want to know God in the way that makes me feel the best, that never hurts my feelings. My feelings are so important. How dare he hurt my feelings? I don't like to be uncomfortable. I don't want to be challenged. I don't want to be stretched or strained. And the wilderness sounds too much like all of those things. As a youth pastor, we had a family leave the church. We tried to do follow-up interviews anytime we could, and this family is a solid family. They left the church and finally were able to sit down and do a follow-up interview with them and said, why, you know, why, are, you, why are you leaving the church? I will remember the answer for the rest of my life. The parents said, well, we kind of realized that if we stayed here, Our daughter would be part of the youth group, and she was going to have to sweat, and she refuses to sweat. All right, we'll see how that works out for you. Have a good one. We'll catch you later. 
No, she was absolutely, they were 100% serious. They knew that if they stayed at the church, their daughter would be part of the youth ministry and she would be made uncomfortable to stretch, to grow into new things. And I got to be honest, I laughed my head off when I heard it. I mean, not in their face, obviously, behind closed doors. And then I realized I was a hypocrite because that's what I do with God. I refuse to work hard. I don't like being made uncomfortable. I don't like being challenged. I don't like being out of control. I want to be sovereign over my own life, God. Instead, taken to the wilderness. Maybe my math doesn't line up with God's math. He's taken to a place prepared by God in the wilderness where she remains, where he strengthens and nourishes her for 1,260 days. That number, 1,260, is the same number that's been tracked all the way through chapter 11. It's either three and a half years, three and a half months, or three and a half days, depending on which variance you're getting in chapter 11. Uh, the, the hinting is, again, that in, until history is brought to its fullness, until history ends, until the child comes into the fullness of power, until the end of time. Now, interesting, all right, so you'd think uh, the church is taken away into safety and Jesus is taken into heaven. You know, now we have this kind of great victory. Woohoo, God's winning. Uh, the church is relying on God. What's going to happen now? And this next part is amazing, right? War happens in heaven. Symbolically here, Michael and his angels go to war with the dragon. The forces of God go to war with the forces of evil. And oh yeah, by the way, the grammar's very clear. Guess who goes on the attack? Guess who picks this fight? Ain't the devil. He's actually the losing party. He's the passive party. He's the receiving end of the issue. Michael and the angels of God go to war against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fight back, and they are resoundingly defeated. And they're kicked out of heaven and thrown down to earth. Verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. He, he's here. He's laboring in our midst inside creation, seeking to destroy God's creatures. And again, look at how differently our math lines up with God's. We look at this efforts of the devil and every time, honestly, most Christians never think about him, ever. But the one, you know, or three or four times that we do where we hit really bad things, like hurts that are like deep soul hurts, and we think this is not how creation's supposed to be. It's, it's a problem that the devil is here and he's able to interact with us. And it's intriguing that, in fact, actually God's math is this is proof of his victory. You want proof that God is victorious over the devil? He threw him out of, he- out of heaven. The fact that we have to contend with him here is proof that God wins. And again, my math doesn't line up with God's. In fact, actually, there's a primary reason why this is an improvement. I mean, many of us might say, you know, honestly, I would prefer him to be in heaven. Because if he were in heaven, he couldn't mess with me. And it's like, actually, no, verse 10 explains to us what he was doing in heaven is far worse than what he can do down here. In verse 10, it's explained that he was standing before the throne of God and accusing the people of God of all their wrongdoing. 
He was standing before God and saying, look at this man. Look at what he's done. He's evil. He deserves hell. Look at that woman. She's done this wrong. She's evil. She deserves hell. And in fact, actually, with this victory, with the Christ child ascending into heaven, verse 11 highlights this. The blood of the lamb has already accomplished it. He can no longer accuse the people of God in heaven. What's he going to say? Hey, look at this man. Look at the evil that he's done. Jesus is going to say, uh, Romans 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those that are found in Christ Jesus. You need to leave now. He's fine. He belongs to me. Well, what about that lady? She's done such a... Stop. She belongs to me. The blood of Christ covers her. There is no accusation that can be made against the people of God. Nothing can be said about them in heaven anymore. They're holy, righteous, legally before the throne of God. You see, that's why it's better that he's here, because he has nothing to say in heaven. He can't talk badly about you there, because God won't let him, because Jesus has won. Maybe my math doesn't quite line up with God's. It is interesting. He still continues the same tactic of accusing. Now he's just not doing it in front of God. He's doing it between my ears. How many of you have heard his voice? You try to go to bed at night and you remember something evil that you did like 48 years ago. You've confessed it at least 9,000 times. Why do I still feel guilty for this? Ah, Because he wants you to. That's the answer. Because if you're in Christ Jesus, your sins are forgiven. They are currently forgiven if you are in Christ Jesus. It's interesting, verse 12 calls all the people of God to praise. Look, let's rejoice. Let's all celebrate together. Guess what? The devil's been thrown out of heaven. He's on earth. He's let loose. He's running amok on earth. And that's a source of praise because Jesus is winning even now. Verse 10, the kingdom of Christ is already here. We don't have to wait for it later. We don't have to wait for Jesus to become king. Maybe sometime in the future, he's already king. He's already reigning. It's already his authority. The devil is a beaten enemy. Maybe my math doesn't add up to God's. Well, verse 13 explains what happens. Obviously, the devil doesn't like this. He doesn't enjoy the fact that he's been conquered. He doesn't enjoy the fact that he's been thrown out of heaven by the resurrected Christ. And so what does he do? He gets angry. Verse 13, he goes after the Old Testament church, the woman who had given birth. And instead, what does God do? He provides miraculous salvation. He pulls them away. Give them wings of an eagle so that she might fly out into the wilderness to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time, three and a half. That's that three and a half. That's 1260 again. What's happening here is God is providing salvation for his saints. And intriguingly, what's the mechanism he uses to protect them until the second coming of Jesus Christ? Do you realize this? What is the primary mechanism that God uses to protect his children until Jesus comes back. Death. 
That is the primary mechanism that God uses to protect his people until Jesus comes back. He kills them. So they go to heaven and they reside in peace and in safety until the second coming. I mean, I know that when we look at the news today, all of the local media and national media want us to think this is the end of the world coming. Right? We're going to have a climate disaster in the next 12 years. We're all going to die. Heat death of the sun, something. Coronavirus, we're all going to melt from the inside out. Something's going to happen and we're all going to die, right? It could very realistically be that the Lord's is not intended for King Jesus to come back for another 100,000 years. That's quite possible. The earth will absolutely 100% sustain it. Don't worry. And if that's the case, where do you want to be for the next just under 100,000 years? 998,000 to be exact. Where, where do you want to be? I want to be in heaven. And the only way I get there is to die. But I don't like death. Death is scary. I don't want to do it. Maybe my math doesn't match God's math. Maybe that's the problem again. Instead, here the Lord takes uh, his church, he takes specifically his Old Testament church, takes them to heaven uh, to reside in safety, to be uh, patiently protected. And I love verse 15 and 16. It's so bizarre. Right? This is, I love the apocalypse genre of literature. It's so bizarre. Uh, the giant dragon gets angry at the woman and like pukes out this giant river of water in an attempt to like wash her away. I imagine it's much like what York County has been through for the last month or something, you know, concerned that our building is just going to slide back into the retaining pond back behind us. And I love it. The Lord is just like, no, that's stupid. Stop. And the earth eats the river. This is a bizarre interaction of the devil is so clever. He's like, you know what? We'll, we'll throw a river at them. And God's like, why? And the ground eats the river and it's just gone. And you're like, okay, well, that was quick. Slightly bizarre. Possibly confusing, but quick. And I love how it highlights, again, the level of God's tender care for his people. Even the bizarre things can't harm them. The Lord is protecting. Verse 17, so he gets angry, he pouts, he leaves that woman alone and goes looking for the other people of the church, the other offspring of God, the New Testament church, us. He prowls around. And it's in this chapter where it becomes crystal clear that, that John is actually interacting with difficulty differently than we are. Realistically, most of us have lived lives that are so cushy. We have air conditioning, we have refrigeration, and we have dentists that give us painkillers. Most of us have lived lives that are so cushy that we have very quietly and very accidentally adopted a value set that says anything that makes me uncomfortable is wrong. And the problem is, is that the Lord here in chapter 12 is highlighting persecution, difficulty, and challenges are proof of his victory. You want to go further, just say, for God's people, this persecution, this difficulty, it's proof of his love. You want to know how God loves you? You want to have a visible reminder that God loves his children? Just look at any amount of difficulty in your life. (laughs) He's caring for you. He's watching over you. Now, I would make one kind of additional reminder here is that if you're not a child of God, and room this size, you have, to, you have to ask. If you're not a child of God, this is not true for you. 
All of the difficulties of your life are actually a scary reminder of what will come later. That you will be the recipient of God's perfect justice in the end. And honestly, I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for anybody. And so I would ask you to consider at least, please, the free offer that Jesus extends his hands to say, I will freely give you salvation. You have to devote your life to me. There's no, there's no halfway trade with this. I give you salvation. You give me 10% of your life. That is not the trade. I will freely give you all of salvation, all of heaven, all of the glories of God. You give me everything. He demands the totality of who we are. Now, to end with maybe kind of one challenge for us very rapidly as I'm two minutes late. I think probably because we have interacted with temptation so badly, the devil really doesn't have to work very hard at temptation because it takes like the littlest thing and we're like, oh, sin, let's go do that. That we've forgotten the way that the Lord describes his church and the church's interaction with evil. It is intriguing, particularly after the arrival of Christ, the church is never described on the defensive, ever. Here, Michael and the archangels are advancing against the forces of evil. You have it explained elsewhere that the the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Where are the gates of hell located? (laughs) They are a defensive entity. They're not offensive. You don't carry gates with you and set them up outside the battle you're going to get. That's defensive. They're laying siege. The people of God are laying siege to hell itself. I love even how Paul explains the armor of God. There's one part he never explains being covered. The back. The armor of God only works when we're advancing, when we're going forward, when we're marching side by side into danger itself. And I do wonder sometimes again if because we've grown so comfortable, like that sweet girl that refused to sweat, we've done that spiritually where we say, look, God, I, I'm, 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 I'm happy to be yours as long as it doesn't cost me anything. Well, I'll give some money to the church for the tithes and offerings, but it doesn't, as long as it doesn't cost me anything that makes me actually uncomfortable, well, then I'm your man. And the problem is, is what that is, is it creates a church, a Christianity that is sedentary and not advancing. And I want to challenge us with this as we, as this church, continue to grow and praise God that we are. <coughs> got a building getting ready to go up out there praise god that it is can we begin to see ourselves as an outpost of the kingdom of heaven in this place i mean fort mill has what ninety-five thousand people in it now how many of those people just refuse to do anything in relationship to christ we are the front lines going out into that can we please consider ourselves that way can we begin to think about going on the attack And by that I mean, please don't go hurt people. I mean, please go tell them about the love of God. Please go tell them about Jesus and the free offer of the gospel. Please begin to try to reason with them to say, look, the reason why you're so miserable, why your life is so meaningless, is because you have no one to give it meaning. And Christ is the only one who does that. Don't be jerks. 
but be intentional with the truth. I'd love to see the kingdom of God grow in this place. May it be that we are the outpost to start that. Father in heaven, we thank you for the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, please forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for our spiritual laziness, gluttony, and just sedentary life. We refuse to sweat, to work for your kingdom. Oh Lord, please change our hearts. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.